blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. praise you for that, Father. And for all the things that you went through on your way to the cross, Lord, help us to focus in on those today and understand um, why you did it. Pray that you'll bless the words of your servant this morning as he brings your message. Uh, open our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just wanted to share, there's, there's really not a shortage of things ever to pray for. And, and I just wanted to start out by saying, uh, you know, think about this week is, is uh, people in our church are, are healing up either from loss, from surgeries, from, uh, health issues. Um, think about what's going on in Ukraine, uh, a special prayer uh, for those people. We've got missionaries that are close to harm's way over that way that we support. Um, pray for our church leaders. And um, also, you know, I pray for the, the youth of our church also and, and being involved with Awanas. Just, just seeing that, um, I, I see the life in those kids every Wednesday night, and you know that's the future. And we we want uh, we want to raise those kids and and uh, pour our love into those kids. So, um, just lots lots of things to pray for. Um, just wanted to mention also on April third, there's a get to know a get to know lunch right after the service. If you haven't been to one of those, if you've been coming but haven't gone to one of those luncheons, we, we welcome you to do that. Um, you find out a little bit more about Creekside and, and um, uh, meet, meet Steve and, and some of the leadership. So uh, we welcome you to do that. Uh, then on April 16th, I am demanding, excuse me, I'm not demanding, I'm asking people to, um, uh, to, to think about helping with the Easter egg hunt. Um, we're already kind of behind the eight ball a little bit because I'm kind of was put in charge of that. So um, with that, I, I'm just, I, I need help. So uh, there is a sign up out on one of the tables. If you could do that, uh, I would appreciate that greatly. Um, with that, Mr. Allen, if you want to come up, that'd be great. Thank you.
And I, I just want to highlight three different events that I think are really critical and crucial to help us understand how we are sitting here in the middle of the night uh, with Jesus bound and standing in front of this group of, of judges and, and rulers. So I want to point to just three quick events. And a couple of them are not in the, in the book of Matthew, but I think they are really critical. So several months before this, and I don't know the exact uh, timeline, um, but if you remember from the book of John, Jesus hears about the death of his friend Lazarus. And he goes to visit Lazarus, uh, his family, as they grieve. And he does this great miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And if you look in the book of John, you can kind of see the aftermath of this. But one of the, one of the critical things about this event is that it really galvanized the opposition to Jesus. This was like the final straw uh, for them. And if you look in John eleven forty five. You can kind of see the aftermath of this miracle. And John eleven forty five says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But, so a lot of the people that were at this event believed in Jesus. That's awesome. But it says in verse 46, Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So this prompted a little, a little gathering, um, So in verse 47, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. So again, the same body, the same group, the Sanhedrin that Jesus is standing before in our passage today had met before to talk about this very thing. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now down in verse 55, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So this, what we're seeing in Matthew is a culmination of something that had been going on for months. This group had got together and said, we cannot let this stand. We cannot let Jesus continue with his teachings, with his miracles, with his actions. It's got to stop. And so they'd, they'd already made this decision that if someone knew where Jesus was, you need to come tell us. We want to arrest him. And yet months go by. Jesus has not been arrested. And the Pharisees are running into a really thorny problem. And if you look in Luke 22, you kind of see it, see it summarized. Luke 22, the f- first few verses, says, The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So they had this, they had this plan. They, they wanted to find a way to put Jesus to death, but they were afraid, okay? They were afraid of the people. So Jesus was, his support was gaining, it was growing. 
You know, when he comes into the city of Jerusalem, you see people waving the palm branches. I mean, they couldn't just go up to him in the middle of the day when he's teaching and surrounded by all his loyal followers and arrest him, at least in their minds, because they, they did not want a riot. They did not want an uprising. Uh, you know, this was part of the, the reason that the Romans had this group there. They, they were like, you guys need to keep the peace. And if things get out of hand, then boom, you know, we're going to come in and get things, get things set right. So they, want, they needed a way to arrest Jesus, but they had to do it without promoting an uprising, without promoting a riot. And so their plan in verse 3 of Luke 22, uh, aided and abetted by Satan, it says, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So that was the critical thing. So the whole reason this is all happening at night is because they had to arrest him when no one was around. Um, And so we go back to to Matthew 26. um, And as we we looked at last week, that's exactly what happened. Um, Jesus and his disciples were sleeping in a place that was was secret, not known to the general public. Um, You know, they they went there in the dark after night. Um, It was up on on the Mount of Olives we read in some other places. And so they, the authorities needed a way to, to capture, physically capture Jesus without causing an uproar. And the way they did that was by one of Jesus' disciples handing him over, you know, secretly leading these uh, guards and men to Jesus in the middle of the night. And as a continuation, they weren't going to waste any time. You know, they, they're like, we've got to get this thing moving. We've got to get things going forward. Um, we need to find a way to config Jesus. And we're not going to wait. You know, the typical uh, timing of a Jewish trial, they were kind of careful about how it happened. They wanted it to happen in the morning. They didn't want, uh, you know, it to happen, say, right before supper time when everyone's like, we've got to get this done. We've got to go eat. Uh, they didn't, they wouldn't have wanted to have it the day before a feast, typically. They had, they had a lot of, um, precedent and tradition and rules about how a trial should be done, and this was breaking all those rules, okay? So verse 57 says, Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And at that, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Why is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, 
he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? If you are taking notes today, um, you can put three main headings on this passage as we're breaking it down. Um, There should be a slide that shows those. That we're going to look at the accusation of Messiah, the answer of Messiah, and the affliction of Messiah. First, the accusation of Messiah, um, which runs from verse 59, um, really down through uh, verse 62. Now, in verse 59... It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they may put him to death. Um, Go ahead, about two more slides. And the question I think that's helpful to ask is why were they trying to put Jesus to death? Okay? And there are... There's a huge list of reasons, but I I really think most of them can kind of fall under three kind of big categories. And the first one I want us to see is that they they had this political fear. And that was the passage we just read in in the book of John, is that they were saying, if we don't do something to Jesus, we're going to lose our country. Um, They were afraid that uh, Jesus would lead to a complete... um, political, a political force that would completely destroy the current order, um, that would lead to uprising, and Rome wanted things stable, okay? Rome wanted things, you know, Rome did not want rioting. They did not want political upheaval. And so these, these men who are kind of tasked with this role of, of, of authority in, in their area, the last thing that they wanted to see was their, their country being sent into some kind of uh, revolutionary fervor. And so they were afraid. They were afraid that, that if Jesus continued to build his, his following and grow this influence that had, had really started to ramp up after this miracle when he raised Lazarus from the dead, um, they, they were afraid of what was going to happen. Um, the second thing I think you really see is this idea of personal hatred. Um, these leaders really despised uh, Jesus. And you know, I think one of the, the biggest reasons was because of the way that he called them out. He called them out for their hypocrisy and their sins. Just I'm going to read a little snippet from Matthew 23, which we looked at a, a little while back. Matthew 23, 13 Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, Jesus was not messing around with these guys. So just imagine them just seething as they listen to all the things that Jesus was saying about them. And, you know, what they, the response they should have had was to say, hey, are we doing anything wrong here? But 
in their mind, since they're, they were the leaders, the designated authorities, you know, part of Abraham's family, everything that they were doing was right. Uh, and, and they were completely blind to it. And if you remember, you know, there's this kind of telling uh, exchange that happens early in the book of John when Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was actually part of this group, uh, at least earlier in Jesus's ministry. I'm not sure if he is present at this time. And what did Jesus say to him? You know, Nicodemus kind of was wanting to know what great thing he could do for, for God, or how does he you know, become part of God's uh, kingdom. And Jesus said, you need to go become like a little baby, right? He said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But again, these were men that were full of pride, full of knowledge, full of the conviction that they were absolutely right. And so they dug in, you know, our traditions are right. Uh, you shouldn't be eating, uh, eating food with unwashed hands. You shouldn't be um, breaking the Sabbath by healing people. I mean, it kind of just just became, you know, this ongoing conflict that kept growing and growing and growing, them never stopping to examine their own hearts and say, are we in the wrong here? Um, And and I think part of the reason that they refused to, to, to look at themselves critically was because this third reason up on there is this idea that they wanted to preserve their power, okay? And for them to become followers of Christ, they were going to have to kind of, they were going to have to lay that down. Um, they were going to have to acknowledge that we're not the authorities Jesus is. Um, we're not the ones who uh, should be telling you what the law means Jesus is. And they refused to do that. And so... Here, here they, they hatch this plot with Judas. They bring Jesus in in the middle of the night. But they still, they still, in their minds, they need to go through a trial, right? They weren't just going to march Jesus uh, out uh, in the middle of the night and stone him. They felt like, we need to, you know, dot our I's, cross our T's. Surely this is going to be an easy thing to do to convict Jesus. And so they start bringing in these witnesses, It says uh, in verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So you can imagine some of the people they brought forward. Well, Jesus said this. Jesus did that. Um, You know, maybe some people came and talked about how Jesus healed on the Sabbath or uh, again, back to the, this idea of, of eating with unwashed hands or, or, Numerous other examples of how he was contradicting the teachings of, of what they deemed to be true. But the problem was, as they bring in this parade of witnesses, everything that they wanted to convict Jesus of just starts falling apart. It just starts unraveling. Um, and, and you just think how hard it is to convict a man of death who has done nothing wrong, who has never sinned in his entire life. Um, you know, think if, if one of us were to be put on a stand and, and uh, we needed to find some fault, it wouldn't take very long, right? Uh, for someone to come forward and say, hey, 
this guy is not all he's cracked up to be, okay? And I can tell you about of something that happened. Um, it wouldn't take very long. And yet, here's Jesus. They bring in all these witnesses, and they're hitting a dead end. They are not able to get kind of that. They want to get that, that you know, just surefire, 100%, boom, we got him, all right? He's caught in his words, and they can't do it. And the very best uh, thing they can come up with is uh, this. It says, finally, at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So after all these witnesses, the very best thing they have is, well, remember that time when Jesus said, I think this is what he said, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Uh, go to the next slide, and, and you can see the, the parallel passage on this. But they run into a problem. Uh, and, and you can read the, the verse from Matthew and then the verse from Mark. The verse from Mark is in the parallel passage. says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, I, I think that, that uh, each of these gospel writers is, is recording, uh, you know, two different aspects of the same testimony, but Mark adds this little uh, line at the end, that yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So their very best piece of evidence, their very best uh, you know, thing that they tried out here, they still can't even get it to agree. And they're quickly realizing um, we, are, we are running out of, of things that we can do or say that is going to put Jesus to death. If you want to go back and, and read what Jesus actually says in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and I will raise it up again in three days. He never said he was going to destroy the temple of God. He never just said that he was going to uh, destroy it and, th- and rebuild it in three days, you know, not made with hands. They, they, they completely misinterpreted and misunderstood what he was saying. And I think it was clear to everyone gathered there that our case is falling apart. Um, one thing I find really interesting about this trial is some people that you don't see. You don't see anyone there standing on behalf of Jesus, right? Well, the reason was because in, at the end of verse 56, it says, all the disciples left him and fled. Now, there was one disciple that's mentioned this. I'm not going to say a lot about Peter, but Matthew is kind of setting the stage for what we're going to find out about happens next with Peter. But we do know Peter is there, but he's, he's not in there with Jesus in the middle of the fight. He's lurking in the shadows. Everyone who could say anything on Jesus' behalf has completely gone. They've left. They're silent. And I also think it's interesting that Judas, we don't hear from Judas, right? Judas leads the guard to Jesus and sees Jesus arrested and carried off. But Judas does not have the stomach to stick around and see this thing through to the end. Um, I mean, think what kind of, you know, I'm sure in their minds, if they could have had Judas take the stand and said, here's why you should put Jesus to the death, that, that would have been like, you know, that would have been just their, their gold key, their gold ticket right there. So they're running in to a dead end. And so you can kind of hear, I think, the exasperation in Caiaphas' voice in verse 63, and again, as all these lies and false witnesses come forward, 
In contrast, here's Jesus just standing silent, not saying anything. He doesn't get into this tit for tat and denying everything they say. He just lets them talk. And the, the amazing thing is sometimes when you let people talk who are telling lies, they just unravel themselves. They just completely discredit themselves by everything they say. And Jesus doesn't have to say a single word. And I just think it's interesting that in, in this room full of liars that are, that are spreading lies about Jesus, he just stands quiet. He stands silent. And Caiaphas just, he's just about to, you know, I'm just picturing the smoke like coming out of his ears here. And, and he says in verse 63, he kind of, he, he uses this just, this language. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what did Caiaphas mean when he asked this question? And this is something I, I'm still kind of, kind of struggling through. Um, now, when he asked if Jesus is the Christ, it's obvious that he is asking him if he is the Messiah. When he asked him if he is the Son of God, um, you know, there's two different ways that that could be interpreted. One would just be in the aspect of he is using the Son of God as another term to mean the same thing as Messiah. Um, and, and this, you see this a few times in the Old Testament and in Psalm 2, you know, the Psalm by David, David ta- says, uh, uses this kind of terminology that, you know, today you have become my son. And, and there was an aspect where the Jews thought of, of the person who was the king as being the son of God. So that was one way that, it, that you could take this. But um, probably more likely what, what Caiaphas is asking here is something more. And, and what Jesus did was he took this, this terminology of son of God um, that they may have had an imperfect understanding of, and throughout his life, um, he continued to imbue this term with more and more truth so that they could not deny that what Jesus was actually claiming when he claimed uh, or when his uh, followers used these words and that he was really claiming equality with God. And when I read this, uh, this question from Caiaphas, Man, what I can't help but remember is this interaction that Jesus has with Peter. And if you want to look back at Matthew 16, um, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This question of Jesus' identity was always swirling around, always out there. And Jesus was asking his disciples, and he said, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Almost these exact uh, same words, almost the exact same question of what Caiaphas is asking Christ here, is this confession that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
And he goes on, but verse 20, he says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Now that kind of throws a wrench in our idea sometimes of, of how Jesus worked and operated. But you really see this pattern is that Jesus was very indirect in how he revealed his identity. Um, you know, he would sometimes get into exchanges where it was pretty obvious what he was claiming. But his, his first card and, and, you know, he didn't just go around telling everyone, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of God. No, he was, all these things that he did, his very person, his works, his miracles, they were all testifying to who he was, but he was very indirect about it, even secretive to a point. Um, he wanted those who were his true followers to see who he was by his actions and by his, by his works. Um, and those who, who were going to just be these kind of people just hanging on and, and following him for the wrong reasons, he didn't want those people around. He didn't want all the people that would be excited by the idea that, hey, the Messiah is here, the king, the one who's going to overthrow the Roman rule. That was not Jesus, what Jesus wanted. And so when Peter makes this pronunciation, what Jesus says, you know, it's like this turning point. He tells him not to tell people that he's the Christ. And at that same time, it says, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, I, I can't prove this, but part of me wonders, you know, is, is this terminology something that Judas uh, shared with Caiaphas? Did he say, hey, if you want to get Jesus, ask him this. I don't know. Um, but, you know, these words that Caiaphas is asking Jesus, if you look back, he's never really directly, you know, been very, super forthcoming to say, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. It was all kind of things that was shared in private with his disciples, or you had to understand it from what he was teaching, uh, through parables and all these different things. Um, and so, it was obviously there. It was plain for those who wanted to see it. But Jesus was, was careful about how he shared these things. But now we're kind of reaching this climactic point. And that now is the time. And so what does Jesus say? He says, you have said so. Now you think, why, why, did, he, why did he phrase it like that? You have said so. Well, um, I, I was I was reading and about this, and I thought uh, John Piper had a great point that this is actually the second time in the chapter that Jesus uses those words. You have said so. The previous time is uh, in verse twenty-five. He says these words to Judas. It says, "Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi?'" And Jesus says, "You have said so." So this. This you have said so is kind of another way to say you know the truth. You know, did Judas, was Judas really asking Jesus if he was the one that was going to betray him? No, Judas knew. Jesus, by saying you have said so, is saying you know the truth. And so here he says it to Caiaphas. It's like he's saying, Caiaphas, you know the truth. You know, you're asking me this question like you don't know the answer. You know who I am. And 
I think it's so, so interesting that in this room that is full of liars and false witnesses, the only one who could truly convict Jesus was himself. The only thing that would actually sentence him to the cross was the truth. And um, it reminds me of this, uh, of this verse that he, of this uh, quote from Jesus from John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, um, let's see. In John chapter 9, verse 45, Jesus is having another interaction with, with uh, the religious leaders. And he says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. So we have this group of people that are so enmeshed in lies that the most offensive thing for them is to hear the truth. And the one thing that would send Jesus to the cross was not all this false testimony, but the truth out of his very own mouth. And so you're seeing it, it come true. Jesus, you know, the, the thing that he's told his disciples, no one takes my life from me. No one is, is, is making me a victim. I am going to the cross, and I am doing it by speaking the truth. And the fact that the religious leaders would sentence Jesus to death for telling the truth is the condemnation on themselves that they are not part of God's people. But Jesus says more. He says, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is making a direct um, quotation, a direct uh, correlation uh, to the book of Daniel. And I think, yeah, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here it is. It's up on the screen. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You know, ultimately, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what Caiaphas, um, whether he was just asking Jesus whether he was going to be the Jewish Messiah or whether he had something more in mind, because, D, because Jesus leaves no doubt. He's like, just in case anyone thinks, I'm only here as the kind of political messiah that you envision in your mind, um, he's like, yes, you're right, but you're also wrong because you don't even realize everything that is involved in that. And he just lays it out, you know. And, and you look at the words here, the words just make it so clear that when he claims to be a son of man, you know, coming on the clouds of heaven, um, coming to the ancient day of days and presented before him, and this language of dominion and glory and a kingdom, and this idea that not he wasn't just coming to be the king of the Jewish nation. No, all peoples, 
all nations, all languages should serve him. You know, their, their conception of what Messiah was supposed to be was too small. And so Jesus wasn't going to leave any doubt uh, as he stood before them as to what his true identity was. Well, we see the response. Caiaphas, um, you know, whether he's outraged or he's feigning outrage, he definitely puts on a show, right? He tears his garments. Um, and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have not heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? So, you know, whatever secrecy Jesus had maintained was gone. He has fully revealed his identity to say, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah who will reign forevermore. Um, And I am equal with God. I am the Son of God, Son of Man. Um, And so this, this, this question, you know, to Caiaphas, this was, this was blasphemy, right? Because when Jesus, in Jesus in telling the truth, they had two choices, right? They could either say, yes, he is the Lord, or they could say, no, he's not, and he has committed blasphemy by claiming to be the Lord, by claiming to be God. And so the question that Caiaphas, you know, puts out there to the Sanhedrin It's really the same question I think that each one of us has to consider today. What is your judgment? You know, as you look at the life of Jesus, as you look at the way that he lived, the way that, you know, he stands before this group of his his opponents and they can't bring any credible charge against him. They can't stick one bit of evidence that would uh, condemn him to death. The fact that Peter would later write that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, if, if you live with a group of people for, for some amount of time, they're going to see your flaws. They're going to see your, your things that you can maybe hide when you're in public. And yet, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, we will see what happens to him. The rest of Jesus' disciples, they fled, but... Again, if Jesus was an imposter, if Jesus was a fraud, if Jesus was putting on a show, um, you know, these men were not going to, going to stand behind him later. Um, and so Jesus says he stands alone. He stands as the truth in the middle of a room of lies. And this question just rings out, what is your judgment? Well, again... Um, what all the witnesses couldn't do, Christ did. And this question, their judgment, you see what they say? He deserves death. And we really see the affliction of the Messiah begins right here. Um, They spit in his face. They struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? So to them, this idea that he, that this, this man bound before them could be the king, um, was preposterous and it became the basis of their mocking, right? And yet Jesus stood 
He endured it. John 10, 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You know, we're going to, um, we're going to take the bread and the cup as a way to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, we're going to remember that this man who lived a life of perfection, the reason that he was sentenced was he was standing in our place. You know, when Caiaphas said that it's better for one man to die than for the nation to perish, he didn't realize how right he was. He said it in a very cynical and uh, shrewd way. But what he didn't realize is that he was speaking the truth, that Jesus in going to the cross was taking our place. He was dying so that we could live. And we're going to take this bread and this, and this cup as a way to remember the way he suffered for us, that he was afflicted on our behalf. Psalm, or Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we're just humbled uh, as we look at this portrait of Jesus. Um, Standing alone, standing deserted by his friends and his followers. And Father, we realize we would have been the same. Um, We would not have stood by you. Um, We would have left you alone. And yet, you willingly and gladly and happily walked that path to the cross. Um, You testified to the truth. You were crucified by people that uh, knew only lies. And Father, we just pray that we would not be like those rulers who um, could not accept you because of their own pride, could not accept you because they feared losing power or political um, prestige. Father, we just pray that you would make us humble people, that you would help us to see that Jesus was pierced for our sins, the judgment that we deserve fell on him, and by his stripes we are healed. It's in his name we pray. Amen.